specifically made us for community. And you'll get to hear a little bit about that in the sermon. We are currently in the book of First Corinthians. Uh, we're uh, in a series titled Messy Grace. And actually, we're in a series within a series. Uh, so we're taking some time to kind of go uh, deeper than we usually would uh, in First Corinthians chapter uh, seven, uh, 6 and 7. Uh, looking at relationships and sexuality. And so we're, we're in week three. And, and so this uh, Sunday we're talking divorce, right? If you thought the first two were pretty intense, uh, th- this one's going to be real. Uh, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be tough. But my hope is that I would bring truth, that I would leave you with truth, but at the same time that it would be gracious, that you would walk out of here feeling loved, that you would know that God loves you more than you could ever Imagine, and so I've simply titled this message Avoid Divorce and Lovingly Disciple Divorcees. All right, Avoid Divorce and Lovingly Disciple Divorcees, and, and that'll make sense as we kind of navigate through the passage. I like to read the scriptures and then pray and then jump in. All right, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Just to give some context, we read it last week. Uh, Here Jesus is talking about divorce, but at the same time, he gives a biblical definition for marriage. All right, and so I'm going to read that to you just so that you can have that in the back of your mind, that it would anchor us as we look at the piece of scripture in 1 Corinthians. And so Matthew chapter 19, hear these words of our Father. Now when Jesus had finished These sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. All right, that's important. And tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We're going to use this word separate quite a bit. You can interchangeably use with divorce. All right, so just know that. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Let's jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's jump to verse 39. 
A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is active, uh, that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so I ask that it would do that. Uh, that, Lord, you would do a work that only you can do. Would you meet us where we are? Father, this is a difficult topic to talk about. Uh, it's one that affects many of us. Uh, so help us to see it through your eyes. Uh, help me to speak uh, truth, but to do so with grace. Uh, and so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body Think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our king, you are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? And would you show us through your text that we desperately, desperately, desperately need you. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Avoid divorce and lovingly disciple divorcees. The the first thing that the text tells us is to avoid divorce. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Avoid divorce. God is not a fan of divorce. In fact, God hates divorce. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. We see this in Matthew chapter 19. We just read that portion together. We see this in Mark chapter 10. We see it in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24. God is not a fan of divorce. He hates divorce. And and it's clearly stipulated to us in Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. He hates divorce. He is not a fan of it. It's not part of his beautiful design for us. He hates divorce. But this is strong language. I know for many of us, maybe we come from homes where uh, divorce occurred, whether good or bad. Maybe some of you know uh, people who are currently going through divorce. Maybe some of you are divorced. And so this might be uncomfortable. This is strong language. How are we to handle this? God, why do you hate divorce? Why such strong language? Well, I I spoke a little bit about this last week. This is why God hates divorce. This is why he hates divorce. It's because, if you think about it, marriage is primarily not about us. Marriage is primarily not about us. Yes, I know it's two people coming together and it's beautiful and it's romantic and they say these beautiful vows to one another and they want to start a family together. It's, it's all good and great, but it's not primarily about us. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, and yes, I know the language in there is incredibly beautiful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. It's beautiful language. Many of us have have, or maybe will use some of that language in our own vows. But don't miss verse 32 in chapter 5 of Ephesians where Paul says, hey, this is a profound mystery. This, This marriage thing is a profound mystery because it refers to 
Christ and the church. Marriage is not primarily about us. It's about Christ and the church. It's meant to display this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Think of it this way. Imagine the, the Trinity, all right, hanging out together. Uh, before they've created uh, anything. They're hanging out together, and it's amazing. There's this great fellowship and, and, and friendship, and it's flowing from one another. It's just it's incredible. It's what the Bible calls shalom, this incredible peace that existed between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you know that we are created out of that. It's an overflow. We are created out of an overflow of this incredible fellowship that existed between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not that they were sitting there and going, man, we feel so lonely. Maybe we should make humans. No, that's not how it happened. This beautiful fellowship that existed between the three, we are created out of an overflow of that. All right, and so they're hanging out before having created anything, right? They're just hanging out. They're kicking it. It's great. It's unbelievable. And then they're talking about, you know, what they're going to do. They're talking about creation. They're talking about humanity, right? Before all, any of this existed, they're busy talking about it, engaging. Because they're all knowing, right? They're all powerful and all knowing. And so they're just chatting about it. What are we going to do? We're going to create Adam and Eve, and then they're going to sin against us. It's going to be crazy. Then man, we need to do something. Well, Jesus is like, well, then send me. I'll go in, and, and then I'll die for them, and then we'll redeem them. It'll be great. And so God is like, okay, cool. But let's, let's come up with something that will be able to display to them and to the world how much we love them. Something that can display how, how we will remain faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness to us. We, we should think about something that, that we can create that will show how committed we are to them. And so they're just kind of hanging out and, and God's like, what's it going to be? And Jesus is like, I don't know. He's scratching his head. And the Holy Spirit's just hanging back, like all silent, like a, like a ninja, right? Like a silent ninja, like how he always is, just hanging back. And, and then it's kind of quiet. They're thinking. And, and then he's like, maybe we should give them marriage. And Jesus is like, oh, snap, that's brilliant. That's crazy. That is incredible. Yes, we should give them marriage. It'll be a beautiful picture of how we love them. And then God speaks, because you know God always has to have the last word, right? God the Father. And everything goes silent when he speaks. And we shall make it covenantal. <laughs> Boom, cue music, next scene in the beginning. Now, I know that that's probably not what happened. Please, I know some of the conservatives in the room are going to come to me and be like, hey, I was paging through the Bible, and like, it, it's just an illustration, uh, and the Holy Spirit is not a silent ninja. I'm not going to write a book. Don't panic. Don't worry. If you can wait like five or ten minutes, I'm going to quote an old-school theological professor, and you'll love it. Okay, this is just an illustration. Marriage is given to us to display the beautiful relationship that exists between Christ and the church. If you go to the Old Testament, it's the beautiful relationship that existed between God and His people, that He is committed to us, that He's faithful to us. It's a covenantal relationship. And so this is why God hates divorce. Because when it happens, He's going, no, listen, you are distorting this picture. You are distorting this picture. That, that, that is not the intention for it. And so we're giving the body and we're giving the world an incorrect picture 
of God and his relationship to us. This is why he hates it. This is why the strong language. But if we read the scriptures, we'll also see that God allows divorce. God allows divorce. God permits divorce. Under certain circumstances, God permits divorce. And so it it should kind of leave us somewhat confused. It's what I like to call tension. There's tension here. You should feel it. God hates divorce. And literally, we could insert anything in there. We could insert any sin in there. God hates idolatry. God hates greed. God hates gluttony. God hates divorce, but yet he allows it. He allows it. He allows sin. How do do I know that? How do I know that God allows sin? Exhibit A. That we are sinful. We are sinful, but yet God hates it. How are we to exist in this tension? Does God permit what he hates? Does God permit what he hates? The answer is yes. Of course he does. See, all of life is made up of God permitting what God hates. Read the scriptures. God hates sin, but he allows it to continue in our world. He allows us to make wrong decisions. Even though he hates the decisions that we make. See, we are faced everywhere in Scripture with this permissive will of God. This is on par with the scriptural statement that God is not willing that any should perish. We, we know this verse, right? John 3.16. Yet many do perish. All those who do not come to a believing faith in Jesus Christ will perish perish, though God is not willing that any should perish. He does allow it to happen. See, this is the same thing for divorce. It's the same thing for divorce. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the tension? So we have to live in this tension if we are able to handle this. If we're going to navigate through this, we've got to be willing to live in this tension. In fact, this tension should be known as grace. This tension, we should understand it as grace. See, sin is treason. I want us to feel the weight of this. Sin, when we sin against God, this is an act of treason against him. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, it was an act of treason. They wanted to overthrow the, the, the kingdom of God. That was the intention of Satan. When he comes and tempts you, it's because he wants to overthrow the kingdom of God. And, and treason, treason is serious. See, in many countries across the world, treason is punishable by death. The act of treason is punishable by death. God is no different. And so sin is treason against God. Punishable by death, yet God does not punish us this way. God does not punish us this way. If you go read Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned against him. They were meant to be punished. 
but God does something different. He punishes his son. He punishes Jesus who committed no sin, no treason. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, one of my favorite verses in the scripture. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the grace? Do you feel the grace? Any realistic handling of the problem of marriage and divorce we must face the fact that God does allow divorce. If we're to understand it, we have to. Under certain circumstances, God permits divorce. He also permits remarriage after divorce, and we'll get into that in a moment. So we have to put it within this context to begin to understand it. Yes, God hates sin. He hates it. He hates divorce. And so that's why I started by saying that we are to avoid it in the same way that we are to avoid any form of sin. God does allow it. He does allow it. See, the Lord himself acknowledges this and explains it. He says that it is the hardness of heart. Remember reading that in Matthew 19? It is the hardness of heart that creates conditions that can lead to divorce. What does the hardness of heart mean? It means a stubborn deliberateness, a refusal to listen to God and what he has to say, and a determination to do things our own way. That's what it means. It's this idea of, uh, I am the captain of my own ship. I am the master of my own destiny. That's the hardness of heart. And all of us, all of us, listen to me, all of us have that. A soft heart is one that is open to instruction, one that is willing to listen to what God is saying and tries to obey him and walk obediently before him. This is a softened heart. See, a hardened heart is the exact opposite. It is when one partner or the other, or maybe both, are determined not to pay attention to what God has to say. They want their own way. They want the way that they have chosen, and they want it now. Hey, guys, this is me. This is me. This is us. And this is not just divorce. I know we're talking about divorce, and the passage talks about divorce, but, but, but this is everything. All of sin is because of a hardened heart. It's when we want to do things our own way, when we think we are God. Selene was talking about the sovereignty of God. It's when we think we're sovereign. When we think we're the ones who sit on the throne and make decisions. But life has a funny way of telling us that we are not in control. But back to divorce. And so we are to avoid divorce because God hates it. But we are to lovingly disciple divorcees, acknowledging that God, under certain circumstances, permits divorce where there is a hardened heart. And so if we look through scriptures, there, there are three places. What are these circumstances where God allows or permits divorce? There's three, three things or three reasons 
where God allows divorce. The first one is adultery. Adultery. Jesus talks about this in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. It's when one of the spouses goes outside of their marriage for sexual fulfillment. Adultery. The other one is the ongoing, unrepentant practice of sexual immorality. We spoke about this two weeks ago. But if you look in Deuteronomy 24, Moses unpacks this a little bit. The ongoing, unrepentant practice of sexual immorality. Warrants divorce. And then the last one is abandonment. Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy 24, but our passage talks about it as well. Abandonment. So one just decides, you know what, I'm just going to pack up and leave and disappear. See, I would throw abuse in here as well. The ongoing, unrepentant practice of abuse or abuse, just any form of abuse, physical, emotional, mental, where you just continue and continue and continue and you're not willing to stop. This is why I would call it abandonment because in that moment, and usually this is us men, we do this, but you can go both ways. In that moment, you've left your post as a husband. You've completely disregarded your calling as a husband to be protective, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be nurturing. You've just said, you know what? I don't care anymore. Those are the only three reasons that God permits divorce. Notice what's not on this list. What's not on this list is, I I just don't love him anymore. It's like, wait, what? See, that's an emotional reason. It's an emotional reason. And, and for real, I'm just going to keep it real. If, if, if that was a reason that you could get divorced, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I know some of the married folk in here, you're amening, but it's under your breath. It's like, amen, amen. Because there's some days where you just wake up and you're just like, you know what, not today. Ladies, you know. When it's like maybe the, the hundredth time you've told him, please don't leave the dishes there. Please don't, you know, I, I just, I, like, why do I even love this man? Divorce. <laughs> it's not on here. Here's a good one. Irreconcilable differences. Notice it's not on the list. Like, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. I feel like they make it really difficult so that, like, no one questions it. It's like, I have no idea what that means, so let me not... Okay, cool. Yeah, it's fine. Divorced. Next, please. It's not on here. And guys, we have those all the time. If you've been with us for a while, we talk about it in a transcultural community. Oh, my goodness. Irreconcilable differences. But God's like, nope. That's not a reason for divorce. It's adultery, unrepentant, ongoing sexual immorality, and abandonment. But let's look at the text. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. All right, now what he means by that, he has, listen, you're not going to find what I'm about to say in Scripture. But remember a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about uh, Paul saying, listen, I am an apostle. I have met with Jesus. And so he's saying, listen, this is on, on authority because I, you can take this with authority because Jesus has given this to me, though it's not in Scripture. That's what he means by that. To the rest I say, 
I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Let me give some context to what's going on here. So in Corinth, there's a few Jewish people, but it's mostly Gentiles. And so Paul comes, plants the church, amazing things are happening. People are now coming to faith. People are now beginning to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But now it's challenging because now maybe the missus goes to work and her manager is a Christian, shares the gospel with her. She's blown away by what Jesus came to die for me. She gives her life to Jesus. Now she goes home, but husband is not a Christian. He's still worshiping idols at the temple down the road. And so Paul is saying, listen, okay, cool. I understand that these, these situations happen, but don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. He's saying the same for the husband. If, if husband, you come to faith and your wife isn't, she doesn't want to go with you to church, don't get divorced. That's not a reason to get divorced. That if they are willing, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you despite the fact that you now love Jesus, he says, stay. Paul says, stay. Here's the reason, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He gives a reason to why he says stay. Because, look, guys, I know it's challenging. I can only imagine. I can only imagine living with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, who every time you're like, I want to pray or I want to go to church, I want to go to city group, and they're just like, this is ridiculous. Why do you want to do this thing? Why do you want to give your money away to the church? I can only imagine how difficult it must be. And Paul understands it. That's why he writes these words. I'll read it again because guys, don't miss it. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The tension. This is confusing. It should be confusing. H how? How are they made holy? They're unbelieving. They, they don't believe in Jesus, but yet Paul says that they are made holy. This is why he says, stay. And I had this really, really cool way of unpacking it and explaining it. And then I, I read a commentary on this. And I thought to myself, hey, here's an old white guy. Um, has a lot more degrees than I have. So I'm just going to read this. It's brilliant. Richard Pratt. He's an Old Testament professor from Harvard. Yeah, and I'm from Tux, but Harvard. <laughs> a Presbyterian. This is what he says on the matter. Paul justified his position in two ways, right? The position of saying, hey, stay, stay. He justified it in two ways. First, the unbelieving husband and unbelieving wife have been sanctified through the believing wife and husband. See, the term sanctified means being made special or set apart for God's use or purposes. It does not mean that these unbelievers were redeemed or justified in Christ. It's important to hear. If they had been redeemed or justified, they would not have been called unbelieving. All right? Rather, through the believing spouse, 
the unbelieving spouse participates in the community of the sanctified people of God. And so they, so they get to participate in matters of church. They get to participate in the Sunday gathering if maybe they decide to come. They get to participate in the city group gatherings if maybe you decide to host one at your house. They get to participate in the matters of God even though they are unbelievers. See, this sanctification process is different in each marriage. Some unbelieving spouses will eventually become believers through their association with their believing spouses. This is what he means in verse 16. But we must understand that others may not respond to this influence, that we are not in control of what God does. We don't save people. We don't save people. We get to participate in God saving people, but we don't save people. In the very least, these unbelievers come into contact with the gospel and Christian graces in ways that folks far from any gospel exposure ever will. Paul says stay, because in you staying, that is an act of grace on their lives. That they get to experience bits of the gospel they're not Christian. They have not been redeemed yet. But they get to experience bits of the gospel in ways that an unbelieving spouse somewhere in the Middle East would ever experience. For those learned folks in the room, in the room those who like to read, they would understand this as common grace. This is common grace. The fact that we live in a country that still kind of calls itself Christian. It's common grace. The fact that we can gather like this with no persecution, common grace. The fact that you can open your Bible in your car, that you can pray publicly, it is common grace. But here's the beautiful thing about common grace. We hope, we hope that it leads to a saving grace. That it leads to a saving grace. And so Paul says, listen, stay. Common grace. But the hope is that it would lead to saving grace. For this reason, Paul defended his position by mentioning a belief that he and the Corinthians shared. This is still Richard Pratt. Super wise old guy. He says, if it were not true that that unbelieving spouses are sanctified, then the children of these marriages would be unclean. But it was inconceivable both to the Corinthians and to Paul that the children of believers would be anything but holy. See, the apostles' words assume a teaching that appears throughout the Bible, that the children of believers are special in God's eyes, even though they are not redeemed. They are not redeemed yet, but they are special in God's eyes. See, the term holy originates from the same root as sanctified found in this letter. These children are not believers, but they are expected heirs, expected heirs in faith and in hope of a covenant relationship with their believing or that their believing parents enjoy with God. And so he says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove my point for you to stay in this marriage, I'm going to prove my point by, by talking about children. 
by talking about children. So, so children who are born to believers, they are not redeemed yet. But because they're in an environment where the gospel is being lived, they get to see a picture of grace and love and mercy. And the hope is that that would lead to faith in Jesus. He says we should think the same way about our unbelieving spouses. So stay. If they're willing to stay, if they are willing to stay, then stay. Don't get divorced. Pray that they would come to faith. You see, in this situation, your unbelieving spouse is your closest mission field. Your unbelieving spouse is your closest mission field, just like your unbelieving children are. My two daughters, they don't know Jesus yet. And so I share the gospel. I, I live out the gospel in hope that, that through all of that, God would use it and draw them to himself. They are my mission field. Before I think about my community and my friends and family that's out there, I got to, here's my mission field right here. And so to the believing spouse, when you wake up in the morning, that is your mission field. This is why Paul says, stay. But notice what he's not saying. Notice what Richard Pratt is not saying. Paul is not saying that therefore now you can be unequally yoked. That's not what he's saying. See, many, many folks will read this and go, oh, okay, so it's cool. I, I can marry a non-Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He's clear about it. What he says here is to those who are married already, if you're single, this does not give you license to go, okay, now I can go marry a, a non-Christian and hope that they will come to Christ. Ladies, please don't do that. I hear it way too often. No, it's just, he's such a great guy. He just needs a little bit of Jesus. And, and I know, like, how, how, will he, how will he become a Christian if I don't, if I don't marry him? Like, I, maybe then we should change your name to Jesus. And if you had some time, then, hey, could, do you mind saving some other people, Jesus? Because you're so powerful, like, because you save people, right? Paul is not giving license. Please, please, please do not be unequally. Do you know how difficult it is? Don't do it. Paul is not giving license to that. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. This is ab abandonment. He's saying, listen, if they're just going like, I can't take this church thing, I can't take this Jesus thing, uh, I want nothing to do with you, I'm leaving. Then Paul's like, okay, cool. Then get divorced. Brother, sister, we don't want you to be enslaved. We don't want you to be enslaved. He says, God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. This is Romans 12 verse 18 language. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It'd be horrible to live in a home where you're constantly at war with one another because one has chosen the gospel and the other one wants nothing to do with the gospel. He says if the unbelieving spouse is like, you know what, I'm, I want out, then he's like, okay, then you can get divorced. But we must ask the question, what is an environment that is no longer peaceful? I feel like we should ask that. 
What is an environment that is no longer peaceful? Here's my answer. Call a friend. Ask a friend. Get someone in your life who will be able to help you answer that question. Because if left to you, left to you, I feel we'll come up with any reason to say, well, it's not peaceful anymore. Because I will always choose myself. Left, left to me, I will always choose myself every time. And sometimes it'll be like, no, no, hold on. This is a situation that could be fixed. It's like, no, 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 I want out. This is no longer peaceful. It's like, no, no, get some people around you. Get into community. Have people speak into your life. Have people go, you know what? It's bad, but some counseling, some discipleship. Man, you, you can make this work. See, many of us, we, we need a Nathan in our lives. You guys know Nathan, the prophet Nathan? So there's King David. Um, he sleeps with someone else's wife, gets her pregnant, realizes, man, this is really, really bad, scandal of the year. The guy's out at war, so he calls him back, orchestrates a plan that's going to get this guy killed. So he, he ends up dying so that he can now live with this woman and kind of cover up this sin. And he does, right? The text tells us that he does, and so he kind of continues to live life. Nathan shows up and he's like, hey, man, let me tell you a story. David must have loved stories. He's like, cool. It's like there was this rich man had a friend come over and so instead of uh, killing one of his own sheep to, you know, prepare for a meal, he goes and uh, finds a really poor guy who has almost nothing, takes the very little that he has uh, and then kills that and then has a feast. What do you think? I mean, David was like, What? You kill that man. Nathan looks at him. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. I love it. You are the man. It's like a bold and beautiful scene. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just then it cuts next week. It's like you are that man. See, guys, we need Nathan's in our lives. And this is David. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. I mean, this brother wrote the Psalms. So he, he got one. Like, I, I haven't written one Psalm. I need many Nathans in my life. You're trying to figure out, how do I know when an environment is not peaceful? Get a Nathan in. Say, hey, man, this is what's going on in my life. See, many of us, we, we love to live in isolation because then we can make decisions on our own that best suit us. We need community. We need community. Verse 16, for how, do you, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is why I say stay. This is why Paul says stay, because you don't know. God is at work. He's doing something behind the scenes that you don't know. 5, 10, 15 years from now, you guys will stand and you'll share this amazing story of what God has done. You don't know. Common grace. The hope is that common grace leads to saving grace. Let's jump to verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. I love the fact that he put it in there because he knows the Corinthians. It's like, ooh, it's now time for me to find my own man. No, yeah, only in the Lord. 
Go find a man, but only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that I too have the Spirit of God. As he had done a number of times in this chapter, Paul allowed marriage, but clearly made it known his own judgment and or opinion that a woman would be happier or a widow would be happier if she stayed as she was unmarried. Why does Paul advocate for singleness? Come back next week, we'll talk about it. It's important to note that Paul did not give contradictory advice to the Corinthians and to Timothy. Because if you look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, he actually encourages the widows to get married. So he's not contradicting himself. Context is important. There's something happening in Corinth that leads him to say this. You want to know what it is? Come back next week. Paul wanted to make sure that no one dismissed his opinion too quickly. Therefore, he reminded the Corinthians that he also had the Spirit of God, that he spoke as an apostle. Comes with the authority of Christ because he's an apostle. Now, you might sit here and go, okay, cool, this, this is all great. You've worked through the text. Um, but how do we handle this divorce thing? We avoid divorce and like Paul has just unpacked, we lovingly disciple divorcees. Guys, the, there's tension here and I want you to feel it. It's not always as simple as you may think. It is not always as simple as you may think. Do you notice how Paul, specifically for the Corinth, is like, okay, let me, let me hear the facts, let me hear what's going on. I'm applying the word of God and then, and then we just need to figure out all this other stuff that exists in the tension with grace with grace, that it's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And so let me leave you with a few things to think about. How then do we engage matters of divorce? I've said it a number of times and I'll say it again because I want to be clear. We avoid divorce. Family, we avoid divorce and we lovingly disciple divorcees. L let's answer a few real life questions. All right. I'm currently married to an unbeliever. What do I do? Get around community. Stop living in isolation and get around community. Share some of your struggles with some sisters and some brothers so we can pray for you. We can pray together so we can engage together. Be in community. Discipleship. I'm a huge advocate of discipleship. Discipleship, you're married to an unbeliever. Get in a discipleship relationship. Don't do this on your own. It's incredibly difficult. Don't do it on your own. Maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're wanting to get divorced. How, how do we engage people who are wanting to get divorced? Get in community. Get in community. Don't do this on your own. You will kill one another. Get in community. Get in some discipleship relationships. Seek wisdom and guidance. What about people who are already divorced? What do we do? One, we let them know that God hates divorce. But then we also know that God loves them more than they could ever imagine. We let them know that, that there's truth and grace together. And so we say, hey, get in community. Let's talk. Let's walk a road together in community that we want to come alongside those who are divorced. You're not meant to do this on your own. 
Because I know this is what we do as church. Like when, when someone sins and it's like a visible sin, right? I know divorce is one. Another one that exists in the church is children out of wedlock. These are visible, tangible sins that we see. Everyone sees it. It's like church just gets like super weird and it's like, we don't know what to do. And so like there's no more space for you here anymore because like we don't know what to do with you and it's awkward. And eventually that person leaves and it's like, oh, thank goodness. Now we can talk about them. Did you hear that? Like, why do we do that? We're all sinful and we're all in desperate need of a savior. And so what do we do? We get around them, get in community. You're already divorced, get in community. We want to walk alongside you. Church needs to do better. I need to do better. What about people who are divorced and they want to get remarried? Well, I remind them that divorce happens because of a hardness of heart. And so usually that's a good gauge. It's a good way to kind of evaluate. So where is your heart? So you're now divorced. And remember, hardness of heart. And you want to get remarried. Well, where's your heart? Are you still angry? Are you still bitter? Have you forgiven? And if the answer is no, then you're not ready to get married. Get in community. Let's walk a journey together. Let's sort out those things. God restores. God forgives. But if you're still holding on to that, you are not ready to get married. You will destroy that other person. Get in some discipleship relationships. What about people who are divorced and have already remarried? Well, I'll simply ask you, where's your heart? All right, so you're divorced. You're already remarried. So where's your heart? Like, are you, are you married and you're still holding on? Like, you need to sort that stuff out. Get in community. Get in some discipleship relationships. Notice the words that I just keep repeating. Community, discipleship. Guys, you cannot do this on your own. We weren't made to live in isolation. We're made for fellowship. So get in communities. Get in some discipleship relationships. Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. We lovingly disciple divorcees. We lovingly disciple divorcees. And so this is my desire this morning, is that I would leave you with a sense of hope. That I would leave you with a sense of hope. One, a bigger picture of marriage. I definitely want you to see that. A bigger picture of marriage. Understanding the permanent reality of marriage, pointing to the beautiful covenant that exists between God and His people. But I also want you to see the beautiful picture of grace. The beautiful picture of grace. A grace that we all need. That all of us so desperately need. Divorce is a, it's a reality that many of us will face. Whether you know someone who's divorced, you come out of a divorced family, maybe even you're contemplating it right now. It's messy. It's messy. But I want you to know that there is grace to cover that mess, that He will meet you where you are. And he loves you enough not to leave you where you are. Don't do this on your own. You are not alone. I am here. Come chat to me if you want to chat. You are not alone. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come now and ask that you would do, you would do this mighty, incredible, beautiful, loving work 
of meeting us where we are, that, that there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of frustration. But you're a God who heals, you're a God who restores. And so, God, I'm asking that you would do that. You would do that, uh, that you would remove any form of bitterness or, or anger, guilt and shame. That Jesus, these are the things that you died for on the cross. And so you ask that you would leave all of that at the foot of the cross. And that our, our hands would be wide open, ready to receive from you mercy, grace, and love. And joy that only comes from you. And so, Lord, we love you. We praise you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.